Hello and welcome to The Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage of Monaco 24, with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week, we look at the greatest films of all time. Momentum has coalesced around certain things where there have been glaring omissions in this list for quite a long time, and now you see things starting to emerge. Plus, a nice recipe for your weekend. We've got enough here for about four people, but you might want to double the recipe because it's really nice the next day. The longer you keep it, the better it gets kind of thing. All that and much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In 2009, an 18-year-old British man, Harry Dunn, was knocked off his motorcycle and killed by an American citizen driving on the wrong side of the road. The American citizen, Anne Sakulas, was married to a U.S. intelligence official serving at a nearby military base. The U.S. government asserted diplomatic immunity on her behalf, and she left the country. Yesterday, after three years of transatlantic rancor, justice of a sort was done. Anne Sakulas pleaded guilty, remotely, to causing death by careless driving to a British court and was sentenced to eight months, suspended for a year. We cover the story in studio with our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. Andrew, first of all, we, we should probably get you to explain that you have personal reasons for having followed this case very closely. Well, look, my family story is certainly nothing of the scale of this, but there were some strange echoes for me that may have made me follow this story over the past three years. And I think the extraordinary fight by the family to try and get some justice. But it made me think about the nature of grief and how you get over the loss of a child. So... My family story is that actually uh, some 18 months before I was born, my parents had a, a son who was 10 years old who was hit by uh, an American serviceman driving a, a Volkswagen Beetle. And um, my brother was seriously injured and was taken into hospital where he survived for 10 days before he passed away. So then, strangely, 18 months later, my parents already had a pretty grown-up family. When my mum was 45 and my dad was 50, my mum suddenly became pregnant again, and I was born out of that pregnancy. So I grew up not really thinking about the, the, this tragedy much, but now when I look back, I realise how much it shaped my parents' mm. lives and and how this idea that you can get closure even with uh, the, the end of a trial, I, d I don't think it ends there. I think that for the, the, the both the Sakulis family, actually, and for the Dunn family, it will continue. It, it, it leaves a hairline crack through your family, which I think is, is, you know, it doesn't mean it destroys your family or is a, a, always painful, but it's always there. It's, always, it's a line that runs through your family. I mean, in the case of your brother's death, was any kind of justice done? Did your parents attempt to pursue any kind of justice? Because there is a, there's obviously a similar complicating factor in that this is a, an American service person involved. There was an inquest and it was deemed an accident. And I think for my... And the, the American serviceman would have been st stationed here. He was stationed here at a, a US airbase. And he went back, I believe, to America. But it, it's also, it happened in, in the early 60s. And he could still be alive, I would imagine. Mm. And, you know, and, and the, the tragedy, you know, Anzacullis should have come face, face trial and, and done the decent thing. Because 
I think for her as well and her family, you know, this notion that you can just walk away from those scenes, I think is very difficult. I don't, I don't know that anybody can do it. And I have often wondered about him because, you know, for my parents, it was a strange time. So they had another son mm. and they didn't really want to kind of, in many ways, you know, kind of bring the two things together. But they did come together. You know, my, my grandmother had bought the bicycle on which my brother was killed. At Christmas, you know, aunts and uncles would get forgetful and you, you would open a birthday card and it was, you know, to Ian rather than to Andrew. And then there was a strange thing when my... In fact, when there was nothing wrong with my mother, but when I was in my 30s, we were at dinner once with my mum and dad and my partner. And my mum went through a mental kind of um, door that she found it impossible to come back from. And we were at, at dinner and she suddenly thought that I was Ian. And... It was, a, it was an awful moment for her and for me. So this is why I think this is this Fisher thing is interesting because you know that you put it aside and you you box up your grief and you you move on, which my parents mm. did. They were happy, wonderful people, and amazing parents. But it doesn't go away. And you know, I never knew this guy. He, he he died before I was born. But I've always had this kind of like a, a little bit of a shadow cast by it because mm. and my sisters too. It's it's just one of those pieces of family history so i think for the dunn family what's fascinating is and i wish them all all super well because i think it is is hard to move on we we, we don't like people dying in the wrong order and when a a son dies before a a parent it's it's difficult i mean what i think this case throws up is the 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 question of the difference between justice and closure do you think they're the same thing and do you think in your parents experience it might have been different if that different rather if there'd been this kind of justice done i don't really and i i think that you know that there is no justice in in this situation you, mm. you know that you know you if answer coolers had come back and she had actually not got a suspended sentence and she had been sent to jail for several years it doesn't change the narrative and i and i think oddly maybe for the dunn family that is why they have said that they they feel that they have done what they could do and they need to move on now because I think actually when somebody then is is detained or incarcerated in a way the story keeps on going on in your mind then you have to think about her in prison and things and that that doesn't res- resolve the situation it was a, it sounds like it was a, a, a terrible accident it was dangerous driving she pulled onto the wrong side of the road coming out of a US airbase but. I, I don't think that, that a trial would have, have, have solved my parents' grief. I think, and also, that, that this is a time when people didn't know how to talk about mm. these things. So, in, you know, I, the, the, just a tiny side, my parents had a, a tin box in which was Ian's watch and the football cards he'd collected and things. And my, my dad showed me that box maybe when I was like eight or nine. And he began to be comfortable about telling me the story. And there was a, one picture of uh, Ian in their bedroom. But, but oddly, it wasn't that talked about. But that, now I, I look back and wonder, how on earth could you go to the same hospital and, and say goodbye to one son and collect another son as a baby in such a short period of time when you must have been in grief? But I, I don't remember those things. So I don't know how, I don't know the, the, the mm. tears that were, were, were behind closed doors. I don't know the conversations that were said over pillows at night. But I have a feeling that you know there was a lot bottled up, and when I look back at it, I can see it. I, you know, my dad was somebody who, every Sunday, would go into the garden and garden on his own for several hours, and I'm sure that was a, a moment of reflection. Just finally, then, um, and picking up on what you were saying about how times have changed, it, it would probably have been unimaginable in the period you're talking about, had your parents wanted to insert themselves in the middle of a fairly significant transatlantic diplomatic dispute. Um, 
but obviously Harry Dunn's family have done that. They have achieved something of what they wanted to achieve. Do you think times have changed enough or that it's a positive development that times have changed sufficiently that a family in this situation now feels able to do that? Well, they have been extraordinary. Can you imagine being invited to Washington meeting the President of the United States and still holding out for the thing that you believe in. But Andrew, I think you know, that you know, we see it again and again, whether it's it's because a child has an illness, uh, a terrible crime, like with Stephen Lawrence, for example. The oddly very ordinary people who are parents, when they are, are thrust into tragic situations, they have, many of them have within them an extraordinary capacity to fight for justice. And that can be in all sorts of amazing situations. But again, I I just marvel at people who, in a situation like this, weren't coward, knew that justice had to be done, and fought like tooth and nail and and did everything they could to make sure that their their son's life wasn't just forgotten and that they got as best as they could, as close as they could, to some kind of justice for themselves. And now to an interview I did with The Stack, a very exciting one. The magazine Sight and Sound did a poll with film critics every decade to look at the greatest films of all time. Well, the new list is out, and I had the pleasure to speak with their editor-in-chief, Mike Williams. I felt like I put my head down to get the redesign done, lifted it up, and all of a sudden it was time to do the poll, and it just really came upon us. And in those moments of putting it together and polling a whole world of film critics and a whole world of filmmakers, you know that this is a big deal already just from being a reader, but when you're in the thick of it and you really get to understand how much this means to people and how much it sets the rhythm of what, film discourse will be for the next 10 years and how the results of this poll they don't just have an impact in that they get people talking for a week they have an impact in they actually change deep perceptions of what is the film canon and what are the works that have resonated in the past you know the challenges to what has faded and why the the reasons behind new things emerging it's so huge and the interest in it announcement on Thursday was just incredible the the BFI website crashed because so many people were trying to come to it it's like record traffic on the site all the advanced copies of the magazine have basically sold out already. We were one of the number one trending topics on Twitter. There's a sort of subsection of Twitter, which I'm sure you know, called Film Twitter, basically, yes. <laughs> which is an interesting place to observe any sort of discourse on film. And Film Twitter is definitely on fire right now, in a mostly good way. And it's it's just amazing to see how much these results matter and just the tone that they set for the conversation, it's uh, incredible, really. And for me, this list serves as, as guidance. And I think that this year's number one, uh, more than ever, I've got to be honest with you, Mike, I haven't seen actually Gene uh, Dillman. I've seen, I've heard about the film. But, you know, looking at the list, I'm the kind of person who say, you know what, I actually must watch in the, in the coming months. I'm sure there will be quite a lot of people actually like that as well. Yeah, I think that's what's quite amazing about it is that when we first started the list, the first time it was held, the poll was in 1952 and 67 people voted, which I I imagine in 1952, that felt like a lot of people. They probably felt that that was polling, you know, a really wide range of opinions. 
And it gradually, as these things tend to do, anything that is, you know, annual or, you know, like the World Cup is on now, every time the World Cup is on, it always has to be bigger and better than last time. And that's been the idea with the poll is every 10 years, whoever's in control of it always wants to make it bigger than the last one. And for various reasons, you know, the obvious one is for the sense of like occasion. But in 2012 and now again in 2022 the main reason for making it bigger was to make it feel much more representative and inclusive of a wider range of opinions experiences just you know nationalities ethnicities just having a much more representative voice and I got a sense over the last few weeks that there were people maybe in that sort of film Twitter space who thought that us increasing the number of voters from like 800 to 1600, that there might be a sense that there'd be a dumbing down of the list in some way. And the fact that the exact opposite has happened, really, you know, there's no, you can't call this anything other than a really authentic list and an authentic representation of the different movements around previously underheard voices in film and how momentum has coalesced around certain things where there have been glaring omissions in this list for quite a long time and now you see things starting to emerge because there's so much more access to work than ever before you know people can amplify and share stories much more easily now and that the effect that's had, the influence that's had on people's diversity of their own experience and their own choices, just seeing that manifest in, it's a really exciting number one, but it's an incredibly exciting top 10. You can cut it anyway, if you look at the top 50, it's crazy that like we've got like a top 250 ready to publish in January. And at the lower ends there, that's where it gets really interesting when you just see all the different things and the different nationalities coming through. So yeah, I, I feel this is a really democratic top 100 and it just shows the really like highlights the sort of difference in culture and opinion that's manifested over the last 10 years and it's certainly oh my god it's certainly not dumbed down in any way or form because you do of course you have an exciting number one you know a little bit more experimental something perhaps some people even didn't know but there are some classics in there that everybody knows so I think it's a genuine healthy mix you know Vertigo is still number two for example right yeah I think that's it when you say you feel that you will now want to go and see that film I think that will be the same impact and actually seeing things like in that top 10 having Citizen Kane and Vertigo both still in the top 3 and seeing things emerging, you know, kind of more recent classics like Mulholland Drive and In the Mood for Love, I think it really shows that this is a hugely credible list and that the things that people may not have heard of, that's not because they don't have value it's because you, they've just passed you by to this point and this list is now your opportunity to go and seek them out it's you know it's not just a collection of opinions collated into a list is actually like the probably the world's greatest watch list for any budding cinephile that's how i treat the list and was there a film that you were actually very joyful to see in the list i have to say one of my favorites. I was so so glad. It's at number seven, I believe. But Travail, I think, it's such an amazing film, and I was, I mean, super exciting. That is a top ten as well. But do you have one that you can choose from the top hundred? Well, there are many things that. It's a like, hard question. Yeah, it's a hard <laughs> question. I mean, in terms of like personal favorites, it's it's nice to see something. Because I think you know everyone goes 
crazy about Vertigo mm. for good reason. But, you know, my personal favourite Hitchcock film is Psycho. And I think seeing a genre film like that still have so much support behind it when, you know, there's four Hitchcock films in the top 100. And sometimes you can get a sense of a vote being split. So to see so much love for Psycho, still I love that. When I thought about what may be the new number one way back about a year ago, I did feel like it was David Lynch's moment, perhaps, and I could feel that a lot of people were getting behind Mulholland Drive, which is one of my favourite films of all time. So when it became clear that maybe I was deluded and actually it wasn't going to be that high, as the results came in, it was then a thrill to see it number eight in the poll. So that, that meant a lot to me to see that in there. But no, there's so many things, and I love... I think the best contemporary filmmaker right now globally for me is Celine Sciamma and to see Portrait of a Lady on Fire there in the top 100 is amazing but even better for me is like I'm not the only person who voted for Petty Mammon which has only been out for 18 months and I came out of the cinema feeling like that was one of the most beautiful, powerful pieces of cinema I'd ever seen and when I sat down to put my list together I considered putting it on and then thought, well, it's okay, it's only just come out, maybe it's a bit too soon. But then I thought, well, why wait 10 years to put it on next time when actually I think in 10 years' time I will still think it's one of the most amazing pieces of cinema I've ever seen. So to see other people vote for that and for it to appear like low down in the top 250, that's an amazing thing too. And of course, in the new issue, we also have the director's poll, which is also super interesting. And, you know, again, in the event, uh, sorry, I completely forgot the name of the director that said, I think they voted for uh, Kung Fu Panda as well. I love I love those kind of little curiosities here and there. Do you, do you remember which one was it? Oh, I don't remember who voted. Yeah, yeah, I remember Edgar Wright at the launch event flagged that as one of his yeah. favorite choices, didn't he? No, I've been so submerged in all these votes, I sometimes lose track of who voted for what, but it's so I, f- I feel with the director's poll, it's almost more interesting mm. to look at the individual ballots than it is to actually bring those opinions together. Because for me, as much as film criticism has always informed and added context to my enjoyment of cinema, and I've been a reader of film criticism since I was a teenager the things that made me fall in love with cinema were, of course, the films themselves. And therefore, that train spotter interest in what does this director, who means a lot to me and always has them, what do they consider the best films? Actually, that's got like a little extra special tingle to it to pour through those lists and see their choices. And as has been pointed out, it's really interesting to see things where you see that George Miller voted for a Bong Joon-ho film and Bong Joon-ho voted for a George Miller film. And the fact that all of these ballots are submitted independently, no one knows anyone else's choices. And when you see little serendipitous moments like that, it really brings it to life. It's amazing. I have to say there are four different covers. I was talking about the covers at the beginning. They are amazing. I mean, it's very hard to choose, I have to say. Mm. So one is the 2001, one is uh, Vertigo, the other one is Jin Duman, of course, and then we have Citizen Kane. Yeah. And tell us, I mean, the story is not over yet, because I think in January you will release the list of the critics as well. I, I like that. It's, it's, it's an ongoing story. Well, we do see it as a decade in film coming Mm. up so it's not for us to create one big bang event just for social media's benefit you know we're obviously enjoying all the attention and we're enjoying how much conversation has been sparked through it 
but it's never about that one moment. It's about the continued discourse. And we we ourselves will continue to contextualise it and write more about it and release more of the information. So, as you said, in January, we'll put up every single ballot in full with all comments from all 1,600 voters, which you know people will be able to get lost down rabbit holes of going through all these voters' ballots, which is just, that's amazing. But we'll put all that up on the site and a full 250 list. So the 100 is what we focus on to begin with because you know it's a nice tight number. It makes sense to people. But I think it's a little bit more interesting to do a 250 because I say, you know, we're very proud of how varied and wide-reaching the top 100 is, but the top 250 is even more so, so that's exciting. So we'll, we'll do that in January. But what's great about this is that the whole community of cinephiles around the world are so interested in it, and so and people are so capable of finding their own stories and things now and analysing data just off their own backs that actually you can already see just on social media that people are crunching the numbers and looking for threads and themes. So I saw somebody already has produced a list of all of the films that used to be in the top 100 that have now fallen out. You know, So rather than focusing on what's, well. on what's yeah. in, someone's focused on what's out. And that's something that we haven't done yet. But now someone's done it, we don't need to do that because it's there and we find as much interest in the things that other people notice. Because it's like, you know, not to overcook this and call it art as a list, but, you know, any artist knows that once you've put it out into the world, it doesn't belong to you anymore. You have to allow your audience to make of it what they want to and to analyse it in their own way. So it actually becomes really interesting to us to see what, threads other people pick out of it and what they feel is important because it isn't always the same thing that we thought that they would feel was important so it's yeah it's so much fun to watch you are listening to the curator monaco 24 with me fernando Augusto pacheco and it is the semi-finals of a special global countdown world cup let's have a listen and see who are the finalists Fernando, welcome to the programme. It's it's a very exciting day. It's time for semi-finals today. Semi-finals, indeed. It's been a long journey, Marcus. So basically, I selected uh, a winning country from each of the eight groups. And of course, a reminder to our listeners, we're not talking here about football, but about music. So it's going to be an interesting one. And from those eight tracks that we're about to listen, only four will go to the big final next week. There may be some listeners who don't remember which country was the winner of Group A, so it's worth reminding them. It was obvious the Netherlands. Absolutely. The Netherlands was fantastic last time. Let's see what they have on offer. In fact, a band that was number one at the time, they're back, but with a different song. The band, it's called Gold Band. It's a lovely, sexy electro group, but they have the help of Man. She is a very famous uh, Dutch singer, the winner of season six of The Voice of Holland. They have this track, it's called Sticken, which means secretly. Shall we have a listen? Let's do It's a lovely track. I think I love the beats. Uh, And I think I became a big fan of Gold Band. 
They might be added to the Monaco 24 playlist. That's all I can say, Marcus. Oh dear. Well, we continue with the winner from Group B, which is an interesting one. We are talking about Iran. Yeah, the Iranian charts have been quite interesting uh, to look at because so many of the artists, they, they, they are political in their own way. Uh, lots of them, they are helping with the protests uh, after the death of Masa Amini as well. And I think Amir Tatalu, he is indeed one of those. I think he had to move out of the country. He's being arrested quite a few times as well. And he's, uh, you know, one of the big names of the Iranian hip-hop scene. And this is his track, which translated, I believe, is something like this. I was not the first, but the last. Let's have a listen by Amir Tatalu. Wow, I'm not quite sure what Amir is, is singing about over there, but that was quite an intense and interesting track. Very, very intense. And, and, and good that those artists, you know, they are being political and doing their part as much as they can, because music has that power, Marcus. Let's then continue to almost your neck of the woods. We continue to Latin America, to Argentina. That country was the winner of Group C. Absolutely. See, I'm not uh, biased at all. Otherwise, I wouldn't have picked Argentina. I'm joking for our Argentinian listeners. But I think this track is very fun. She's the queen of the Argentinian hip-hop scene. I say hip-hop, but I think her song is quite cumbia as well. You know, there's some, uh, you know, a local uh, rhythm from Latin America. I think it's fun. Great to see as well more kind of female rappers in the country. This is La Joaqui with Dos Besitos. Let's have a listen. Well, you are doing your little dance moves there, yes. subtly. It's fun. I think it's fun. Even, even, even the video for the track was in a kind of a, a, a theme park as mm-hmm. well. I think it's energetic. It's very good song from Argentina. Well, last week already, Fernando, I was asking if you're being unbiased, though, because obviously some of these countries are close to you. So, and, and you were guaranteeing that this is totally neutral, unbiased. Well, I know the next country we're talking about has got a special place in your heart because that song created a track you, you consider of one of the greatest greatest masterpieces the humankind has come up with, which is Barbie Girl. We're talking about Aqu- Oh, yes. Gosh. So we're talking about Denmark, and this next song is from Denmark. Marcus, so you hit the spot. I think Barbie Girl is such an icon. I do love Aqua indeed. Thanks, thanks for reminding. Makes me feel emotional on air, in fact. Mm. I wonder, obviously, <laughs> the next song we're hearing that's from Denmark can't be as good, but I'm wondering if it gets anywhere close. It's a completely different vibe, in fact. You know, Christmas songs are are dominating the Danish charts already. I mean, I know it's still a little bit early, but this track, I think it's only in Denmark. I mean, who who cares about Mariah Carey over there? This song is by Burhan G and Frida Brigman, and the song is called Tinker. I'll explain to you where this song came out, but let's have a listen to the song. Du har øjnene fulde, fulde af eventyr. 
Oh, it's nice. It's nice sweet. and Christmassy. And it's nice that it's quite local as well. So Tinka is a TV character. There, there will be a new series on Danish TV called Tinka's Christmas Adventure. She loves wearing an elf hat. I don't know exactly the whole story about Tinka, but this song's not necessarily new. But it comes back to the Danish charts every Christmas season as well. So it's quite nice. A nice local story uh, there uh, with Denmark. I very much like that. And I, I know that the next country we're talking about now, there's been some excitement about this this artist. Are we hearing from Germany next? Germany next. And the song remains a number one. It's by Peter Fox. Uh, a very interesting character. He's He was quite big in the German dancehall scene. He was part of a band called Seed uh, as well, which is kind of reggae dancehall. But his solo work has been doing very well. And he likes to mix genres. This track where he's listening now, he's, he gets some elements of a map piano from South Africa. It's a little bit political as well, but something you can dance to. This is Peter Fox featuring Ines with Zukunft Pink, Future Pink. Alles good. I quite liked that one actually. Alles good indeed. I love it. I think it's quite uh, interesting. Zukunft uh, Pink. Yes. So the Germans are not yet into the Christmas songs like the Danes, at least at the moment. Excellent. Excellent. I really enjoyed that. I wonder if Morocco is going to be better though. Morocco is well known for quite a lot of melodic rap. And Mochi, he's one of the you know one of the biggest rappers at the moment in Morocco. This is a very gentle track, but still a little bit hip hop. Talat Lagiba by Mochi. Let's have a listen. I mean, it's it's an interesting track, and 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 I like this idea of this melodic rap because it feels to me like a ballad uh, with some elements of hip hop. So yeah, a good entry from Morocco. It feels like it feels like a shorter time ago, but last week we actually covered groups G and H, and and we're talking about those winning countries now. So the winner of Group G was Cameroon. Cameroon. It's a little recap, and I remember you actually enjoyed this track, Marcus. It's just very happy, and it, it is about the World Cup. See, we even have some World Cup songs here on the playlist. It's by a Cameroonian singer, Chris M, and the song's called Shaka Sachange. Let's have a listen. I still enjoy that track, but now we have to move on because we have a limited amount of minutes left and we have quite a lot still to do. So there's one song left before you declare the four winners from this round. But the last group winner from Group H is South Korea. South Korea, and I'm glad they are here because it would be strange if South Korea wouldn't be here because they are influencing the world of music so much. Uh, and this is not quite K-pop. She's a singer-songwriter. It's a beautiful ballad, a slow burner that is doing so well in South Korea. And to be honest, I think probably in the rest of the world in the next months, this is by Yungha Event Horizon.
from South Korea, a great track as well. Fernando, I'm getting a bit nervous now, and I think before you declare the four countries that are going to go to the final round, I think you should shed a bit of light on all the criteria you're taking into account when you're making this important decision. I think, you know, music influence, you know, I know which genres are doing well, because it can't just be my personal music taste, otherwise there'll be Eurodance everywhere. Uh, so, you know, it needs to create an impact, originality as well, and it needs to be a great pop tune, a great song that you can sing along to as well. So those are my criteria. So four countries are going to go to the final. What is the first country out of those four? The first one from Group A, the Netherlands, are going through with an excellent track by Mann featuring Gold Band. I think they deserve it. What is the second song going to the final? Argentina. Welcome Ooh. to the big final. I think it's, it's fun, it's young, energetic. So La Roac is going there with Dos Besitos. Number three. You'll be happy with this one, Marcus. It's Germany. Excellent. What an interesting number one with Peter Fox featuring Inez. New genres. And I'm sure a lot of people will be surprised as well with the song from Germany. So now we have one song left and we have five countries left. We have Iran, Denmark, Morocco, Cameroon and South Korea. One of them is going to go to the finals and the other ones, well, they're not going to be winning this time around. They're in the semi-finals, so that's, that's good enough. But the last one is going to... South Korea. They deserve it. Jungha with Event Horizon. Amazing. Thank you very much for this, Fernando. And indeed, next week at the same time, we have the final of this World Cup countdown. Thank you very much. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Monocle's December-January double issue includes our annual soft power survey that ranks the nations that have committed to winning friends with good diplomacy, cultural hits and even national cuisine. And there are some big surprises in our top 20. Beyond the survey, we look at which Icelandic brands are going international, meet the artists in Baghdad who want their nation to be defined by more than turmoil, and return to Kyiv to speak with Ukraine's foreign minister. This is a war for identity. This is the war between Russia as a state and the people of Ukraine. I think it's impossible to win a war against the people. And we've packed plenty of fun in too, with our roundups of the best bookstores, a look at the revival of the stationery shop, and our list of New Year's resolutions for 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's December-January issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. And on Toll Stories this week, Naomi Shu Elegant explores one of Singapore's most distinctive multi-use tower blocks and contemplates the building's future. Most architecture in Singapore falls into one of three categories. There are the historic structures, like British colonial buildings and colourful shop houses, the modest and functional public housing blocks of the past few decades, and the sleek modern glass and steel towers clustered around the business district. That's part of why the Golden Mile Complex, a mixed-use megastructure that looms above one of Singapore's main highways, is so striking. This brutalist behemoth, which was completed in 1973, is 16 stories tall, and it's wider than it is high, taking up 1.3 hectares of land. 
But the Golden Mile complex doesn't resemble a typical brutalist building of the kind you see across Europe and the U.S. Rather than gray concrete and small windows, the Golden Mile complex is white, top, and yellow, with red and blue accents on sloping terraced balconies, which overflow with plants. On the other side, circular windows reminiscent of a ship's portholes line the upper and lower parts of the building, giving it a touch of whimsy. Staircases jut out from the facade and are topped with yellow cladding and porthole windows, giving them the look of cartoon submarines. This side of the building has an inverted version of the stepped section terrace, with an underside that cuts away in horizontal angles, creating negative space, like standing underneath elevated bleachers. Bright yellow pillars line the facade and glow in the sunshine. The Golden Mile complex contains both residential and commercial properties. It's become an enclave for Singapore's Thai population, and is sometimes referred to as Little Thailand. The high-ceilinged atrium is filled with Thai supermarkets and some of the city's best Thai restaurants, as well as travel agents and karaoke rooms. Exposed ventilation pipes snake around the walls, and people jostle and bustle among food stalls and bars. By Singapore standards, the complex has a reputation for getting a little rowdy, with bar fights and illegal parties popping up every now and then. The distinctive structure blends elements of brutalist architecture with design flourishes adapted to Singapore's year-round tropical climate, with open terraces and big, airy spaces. The apartment balconies have uninterrupted views of the coast and the ocean, and there is an upper-story garden concourse for outdoor activities. There is even a small Buddhist shrine outside one entrance of the building. Many of Singapore's officially designated conserved buildings are much older than the Golden Mile complex, and some people have voiced their distaste for the high-density giant. One local politician referred to it as a vertical slum and a national disgrace. The question of whether the Golden Mile complex would be named a conserved building was up in the air for a long time. But in late 2021, the government announced that it qualified. And earlier this year, a consortium of real estate firms bought the Golden Mile for 700 million Singapore dollars. The developers will restore the building, which has suffered disrepair over the years, and said they would pay special attention to retaining its key features and its signature terraced profile. The redevelopment will coincide with the building's 50th birthday. Details of when it will reopen and what it will be like are still scarce, but it will remain multi-use, likely with a bit of a modern makeover. Current residents and businesses must vacate by next May, when redevelopment will begin. Some plan to return, while others are looking for new leases and saying goodbye to the Golden Mile. And on Foreign Desk Explainer this week, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa is mired in a convoluted corruption scandal. That is not unusual for the country, but as Andrew Muller explains, it could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. It is a question to which there are very few imaginable innocent answers. Why do you have a fortune in cash stuffed into the cushions of your sofa? Uh... If you happen to find yourself being asked it while serving as president of your country, your potential selection of reassuring responses is narrowed still further. On balance, you might be best off pointing excitedly at a squirrel and legging it for the fire escape while your interrogators are distracted. Such is the public relations challenge which has been besetting Cyril Ramaphosa, President of South Africa, for some months now, and which events this week may be bringing to some sort of resolution. A report by an independent expert panel commissioned by South Africa's Parliament to get to the bottom of matters was dispiriting reading for the President. 
The report accused him of tax evasion, holding undeclared foreign currency, failing to inform police of a robbery and gross misuse of state resources, and suggested that this all amounted to grounds for impeachment at the very least. Before we embark on a brisk recap of how we got here and speculate wildly on what might occur next, we should note that President Ramaphosa denies absolutely everything. I deny that there was any form of money laundering. And I've said it more publicly that it was proceeds of sale of game. So... Back in June, a former Director General of South Africa's State Security Agency, or SSA, South Africa's answer to MI5, filed a criminal complaint against the President. Arthur Fraser, for it was he, alleged that in February 2020, thieves tipped off by a domestic servant had broken into the President's private residence on Palapala, a game farm owned by Ramaphosa, and stolen somewhere north of four million US dollars in banknotes, which had been stuffed into sofa cushions, and that Ramaphosa had not reported the crime to the police, the cash to the Reserve Bank, or the means by which he had come by it to the pertinent tax authorities. Even more weirdly, Fraser alleged that Ramaphosa had subsequently engaged presidential security officers to track down the thieves and pay them to keep their yaps shut. President Ramaphosa's response to the allegations raised rather more questions than it answered. Everybody knew that President Ramaphosa is a rich man. Before going into politics, he cleaned up in mining and cattle farming, among other interests. Ramaphosa claimed that rather than the millions claimed to have been looted, it was a mere $580,000 or so. An enormous amount of money, to be sure, but maybe an amount someone as hilariously wealthy as Ramaphosa could plausibly lose down the back of a couch. He said he'd received it for the sale of cows. Cows which, as a few pettifogging sceptics noted, were still grazing on his farm. A Dubai-based Sudanese businessman this week said he'd paid the 580 grand, then subsequently changed his mind about the cows. He has not, as yet, had his money back. Ramaphosa and his allies have also sought to discredit the president's accuser as an embittered malcontent with an axe to grind. This is fair enough, inasmuch as Arthur Fraser is an embittered malcontent with an axe to grind. He is a close ally of Ramaphosa's predecessor, Jacob Zuma, and was demoted from his role as head of the SSA by Ramaphosa in 2018. Fraser is also in legal difficulties of his own, facing charges of obstructing justice relating to his role in securing a medical parole for former President Zuma, who was doing a stretch for contempt of court after refusing to appear at an inquiry into corruption. Zuma, whose parole was declared unlawful by South Africa's Supreme Court of Appeal and is due back in the clink, has accused Ramaphosa of being a thief and a criminal, to which Ramaphosa would be entitled to retort that it takes one to know one. However, not every embittered malcontent with an axe to grind is wrong, and Ramaphosa's defences of his conduct to date have been drawn very much from the dog-ate-my-homework end of the spectrum of excuses. I uh, didn't do it. Which brings us to what might happen next. 
Parliament was supposed to debate the report this week, but this has been punted to next Tuesday to give MPs time to get to Cape Town. In theory, Parliament could impeach Ramaphosa, but Ramaphosa's party, the African National Congress, which has governed South Africa for 28 years, has already said it won't vote for any such motion. It means we must remove ourselves from power. That's what you are saying. You are saying we must impeach, our, impeach ourselves. Imagine if we made it so easy for the president to be removed from positions of responsibility. What will happen? Ramaphosa could, and arguably should, resign, but appears determined on toughing it out, calling for a judicial review of the report into what has become known as Farmgate. He may also have calculated that as long as he stays president, it will be difficult to prosecute him, should anyone fancy their chances. The court may well decide that it, uh, it would be futile. Uh, for it to adjudicate on the report when Parliament, as the primary body to whom the report was handed, has rejected that report. And of course it is within Parliament's remit to do so because that report is mere, a mere guide or advisory to Parliament and not binding. The ANC's annual national conference begins next week. He has already signalled his intention to stand for re-election as party leader. It is, however, possible that the ANC have miscalculated. Parties which have grown complacent on three decades of uninterrupted power often do. And South Africans are beset by crime, social unrest, blackouts and bad governance. As a consequence, South Africa is not quite the one-party state it has generally been since the end of apartheid. Local elections this time last year saw the ANC's vote share dip below 50% for the first time, amid growing and quite reasonable anger at the ANC's ineptitude and corruption. Cyril Ramaphosa has brought the African National Congress into disrepute. He's got serious prima facie matters to answer as the independent panel has indicated with their findings. Therefore, Cyril Ramaphosa, if he had any integrity, would have stepped down to avoid the African National Congress and the government of South Africa to face the kind of embarrassment that he's causing for all of us. A perception that the ANC is covering up corruption ineptly might prove an insult too far. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And as always on The Curator, we like to have a little recipe. And this time is by the man behind London's Naive's Restaurant. Hi guys, this is Tom. I am the chef and owner of Naif's Restaurants, uh, which is a vegan restaurant in Queens Road, Peckham. So today I'm going to make a braised aubergine dish that we make at the restaurant. Um, I really like it. We've got uh, enough here for about four people, but you might want to double the recipe because it's really nice the next day. The longer you keep it, the better it gets kind of thing. And it's really good to eat as a side dish or really good to eat as a snack as well. We start off with two medium aubergines. Uh, we chop those into large chunks, about one inch, and then we're gonna get a pan really, really hot. Uh, you want it just before kind of smoking hot because we wanna get real color on the aubergines. Um, then we add in 75 grams of olive oil and our chopped aubergines, give them a brief toss in the oil, uh, and then you want to basically let them sit in the pan and get some color. Once they've got a bit of color, we're gonna flip them over so we get like all sides really nice and kind of like colored and kind of brown. You might be able to do that in your pan in one go. 
If not, you want to basically separate them, half the oil, half the aubergines, and do it in two batches so you don't overcrowd the pan. The main thing you want is you, you want like one layer of aubergines. If they're kind of sitting on top of each other, then it's not going to be as good. Um, while that's cooking, you want to get one medium uh, garlic clove, and we're going to just chop that up nice and finely. We're going to get two teaspoons of coriander seeds, and we're going to grind those very briefly in a pestle and mortar, um, or you can just grind them in a coffee grinder or whatever you've got. Uh, and we're also going to get a teaspoon of smoked chili flakes uh, or whatever you can find. Smoked paprika and chili flakes, like a mixture of that, that'll be fine as well. So once those are nice and toasted and we have them nice and aromatic, we're going to add back the aubergines from the pan. We're going to let it just kind of like, you know, all mingle together, kind of mix them all up. And then we're going to add two dates. And you just want to take out the pit of the dates, but then the whole date, you don't need to chop it, that goes in. We add in 200 grams of tinned tomato. That's about half a tin, like a normal kind of, you know, regular sized tin. I like to use the best that I can find in terms of like the best quality, but honestly, like they're all pretty good. Like, so, you know, whatever you can find should be fine. Uh, we're gonna add in 150 grams of water and 25 grams of red wine. Any red wine, something that's like, you know, basically not good for drinking anymore is totally fine as well. Um, 25 grams is about a glug. So if you just wanna put a glug in, that's totally fine. Um, and once we do that, we're just going to stir everything, put a lid on, and we're going to cover them and turn the heat down to the lowest setting it will go to. Uh, basically, the idea with this recipe is that we want to get the aubergines very soft, uh, very kind of braised, and we want all those flavours to kind of basically cook together, go into the aubergines, which will kind of soak them up and become very soft, very fragrant, and make that kind of one flavour. Uh, so we basically let that cook for 45 minutes on low heat, uh, and then we're just going to take the lid off and check. We're going to check that the aubergines are nice and soft, nice and kind of pillowy. Uh, there's a lot of oil in the recipe and we want that to kind of go in as well and make like a very kind of like luxurious sauce. Uh, when we're happy with that, and obviously if it's not quite there, you can pop the lid on and cook it for a bit longer. But when we're happy with that, we're going to put uh, about 10 grams of sherry vinegar into the mix. Um, this is again, probably like a kind of like little small glug um, if you don't want to weigh things uh, and then you can always taste it and the idea is to get a really nice mix of kind of sweet and sour flavors so basically you can always adjust that as well but then once we've done that we want to cook the raw taste of the vinegar out a little bit so we'll cook it uncovered for about 10 minutes until everything kind of thickens up and the sauce really kind of comes together so it's less like a stew and more of a kind of like single, kind of quite thick kind of braise. That's what we want to, uh, to happen. Uh, once that's together, we're gonna kind of let it cool down. Uh, and that's for two reasons. I think, you know, usually with these kind of things, they taste better kind of warm rather than super hot. And also I think, you know, it just needs as long as you can give it to let those kind of flavors still come together. It's kind of almost still cooking, even once we turn off the heat. Uh, once you're kind of happy with that, and we can taste it. Uh, we're gonna like check the seasoning as well. Uh, we're gonna add in a kind of good pinch of salt at that point, kind of like stir it together. But also, you know, you can kind of like taste that and like season to how you like it. You can add a little, if you want it a little bit more kind of acidic, you can add a bit more vinegar at this point. Yeah, but you should get a nice kind of like sweet and sour from the dates and from the tomatoes uh, kind of flavor, which should all really complement and balance itself. How I like to eat this is you just chop some fresh mint, um, chuck that on top or, you know, kind of stir it through. Um, and then it's really good with like the best bread you can find, basically like a good kind of like fresh kind of crusty loaf. 
or you can have it with some kind of like grilled, uh, kind of like a homemade garlic bread. Uh, and how we serve it in the restaurant is we actually have these kind of shoestring fries uh, that we put on top, uh, which works really well as, as well. You get kind of a salt and vinegar thing going on. Or some homemade crisps or some really good store-bought crisps should be totally fine as well. Like just having that in a bowl, using the crisps to kind of scoop it. That's really nice. Um, yeah, enjoy guys. In other news this week, Berlin-based journalist Aaron Burnett tell Monaco 24's Marcus Hippie what is known about a far-right plot to depose Germany's government. It really sounds like something straight out of a dystopian novel like The Handmaid's Tale. It really is this shocking and that's bad. Uh, the Justice Minister announced uh, this morning that they made 25 arrests and have a further 27 suspects. Uh, most of those are Germans, uh, but they did also make an arrest in Austria and Italy, and we do have one Russian citizen who has been arrested. Uh, the group had planned to overthrow the Berlin government and install Heinrich XIII. He is a minor German prince into power. So they wanted to do this through an armed uh, attack on Germany's parliament, the Bundestag, uh, to storm the Bundestag with uh, weapons and to seize power uh, violently. Uh, but there is more to this. The group had been in contact with Russian officials uh, to establish a new order in Germany once this planned coup had happened. Uh, other people involved in the plot include a current serving member of Germany's special forces. Uh, special forces, of course, are some of the deadliest and most well-trained classes of soldiers in the world, uh, no matter what country they serve. Uh, others were currently serving reservists in the German army, the Bundeswehr. So we're not just talking about uh, former soldiers. We are talking about uh, some currently serving soldiers, including some that are very highly trained. Uh, the group is linked to the Reichsbürger movement in Germany. And Reich, of course, means empire in German, while Bundes means federal. Uh, there's about 20,000 people in this movement, and they plainly do not accept the current federal republic, uh, and they seek to restore uh, the German Empire, which of course fell in 1945, including its previous territories. How advanced were these plans? Do we know when this attack was meant to happen? Uh, we are still finding that out at the moment. Uh, the Justice Minister has this morning basically just announced uh, that these raids happened. Uh, they originally found out about this plot in April. Uh, some members were arrested at that time for a plan to kidnap the health minister. Uh, and that's when police found evidence of this plot and they started investigating it. So it has been a number of months that they've been looking into this. Uh, we're still waiting to find out just how far along they were uh, with this plot and potentially when they decided uh, on carrying it out. What has been the reaction to this news in Germany? Uh, at the moment, uh, shock. This is uh, all over uh, every German news outlet uh, at the moment. Uh, I think that uh, in the coming days, we may see a lot of um, introspection about the far-right movement again uh, in Germany. Uh, at the moment, the Justice Minister uh, is simply saying uh, we are going to defend our democracy. This is part uh, of doing that. 
uh, and uh, we simply obviously won't accept plots like this in, in, in German democracy at the moment. What do you think will happen next? Uh, well, we're going to, I think, find out uh, a lot more uh, about this plot, uh, first of all. And uh, what is interesting is uh, that they've announced that there's a further 27 suspects. So they made 25 arrests here. There's a further 27. Uh, we need to know uh, who these people are, whether there is uh, uh, just where this investigation is going to take us, and also what the, uh, what the Russian links potentially are. Um, I suspect that uh, that might uh, perhaps put a little bit more pressure on uh, the government uh, to perhaps be a little bit more uh, decisive on Russia policy. The public is certainly uh, on board uh, with that. Um, but it will be interesting to see if, if, that, if that goes a little further. And we will also see, I think, um, a, a lot more introspection about the far-right movement in Germany in general and just how advanced it is and what it seeks to do. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>